Natalie, pronouns she, her, is a field ecologist and researcher with the San Diego Zoo, California. After finishing her degree at the University of North Carolina, Natalie started setting intentions, journaling, and effectively creating her own pathway toward her dream job in wildlife conservation. Natalie shares her experiences in the field, as well as advice for anyone looking to carve out their own perfect role in the ecological space. Welcome, Natalie. Hello and welcome to It's a Wildlife podcast and blog sharing the great work being done for wildlife conservation worldwide and solving problems for ecologists by ecologists. If you're a fellow wildlifer, whether you're just starting out or you've been about the traps for a while, tune in and let's chat. You're in the right place. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Did you want to start by introducing yourself and sharing maybe a bit of your story? Sure, sure. So gosh, I'm not even sure where to start. Kind of my subconscious influence to get into wildlife definitely began with exposure to the ocean as a child and going to sleepaway camp in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia and just sort of having this access to nature at an early age definitely laid the foundation for later pursuing a career in environmental science. So I went to the University of North Carolina in Wilmington. So it was a small little beach town. And I had originally wanted to pursue marine biology. I had spent a summer very gratefully in the Caribbean that gave me exposure to wanting to work on the water. And I was on the sailing team at school. So I was constantly on the water and had wanted to pursue, you know, working sea turtles, for example, things like that, but sort of took a turn. Um, to doing more broad environmental science work and just wildlife in general, decided marine biology was too much chemistry. (laughs) As I've heard a few other wildlife people say that, you know, maybe they started out doing marine work and sort of transitioned. And yeah, so I went to school in North Carolina and pursued environmental science and got exposure to doing bird work. So that was sort of the start for me. And I was very inspired by my professors. I still have a good relationship with a couple of them five years later. That's something that really laid the foundation for kind of how my career took off was building these relationships. And I feel like that's a big part of my career advice is to listen to your elders, be inspired by your professors, build those relationships. Because I had actually completed my minor in biology, which is where my wildlife passion took off. Like I said, I started doing bird work and bird watching and volunteering after I graduated. And I completed my biology minor wanting to pursue going into seasonal work. My professor taught Antarctic ecology and I decided right then and there, um, his name's Dr. Steve Emsley, we're still very close, that I wanted to do what he wanted to do. He went to Antarctica and taught his course based on studying adult penguins and the ecology of Antarctica in general. I was fascinated by that. And so I decided that that's what I wanted to do. After graduating, things really started to took off in terms of doing bird work. That's where it kind of began. And on my website, I have bird watching is the gateway to the wildlife world. I had recently heard another biologist say that. And I was like, wow, like, I'm not the only one who thinks that. Birds are abundant. They are biodiverse. They are challenging to study. And from there, I had done some volunteering with a raptor hospital, bird banding with Audubon. And that's where I got my coastal ecology experience that sort of propelled me in my career forward to doing coastal ecology work now in San Diego, California. So that's where I'm based now. Upon graduating, you know, 
I really targeted an organization that I wanted to work for and what experience was necessary to work for them. So read those qualifications and spend time volunteering. And I know it's easier said than done. I was very lucky to not have debt after college. And I was working full-time as a barista doing volunteering on the side, et cetera. So that sort of propelled me to want to work for the San Diego Zoo with their um, recovery ecology program. So they do work with the California Least Turn and Western Snowy Clover. And let me tell you that this is a big part of my story in terms of failing and trying again. It wasn't until my third try that I had acquired a position with them. And this was after, you know, the second time around, applied and acquired the job and lost it due to COVID. In March 2020, I was getting ready to move out to California. I'm sure like many other people, they lost their jobs in wildlife. And so I didn't want to let that stop me. So I tried again for a third time. I finally, after three years of wanting to work for the San Diego Zoo, acquired that position a year ago. So last summer. So exciting. I know. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. And I think, you know, a big part of what helped me acquire this experience was that post-grad journal entry. Like I was figuring out what I wanted to do. I was looking at, you know, Texas A&M Wildlife Job Board, the classic wildlife job board, but I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I started writing about it in my journal. And I will never forget that journal entry, just kind of casually talking about the San Diego Zoo. And that was really my dream job. And so writing it down was kind of that first step for me and really watching that come to life. You know, it's four years since I think I wrote that journal entry. And now I have, I'm just starting graduate school with the program through the San Diego Zoo as well. So it's all sort of falls into place when you start becoming inspired first by your professors and, and what you're learning and, and then writing about it really thinking a lot about it and what you can do to acquire those experiences to get that dream job. It's easier said than done. Like I said, not everyone has the time to volunteer. And that's why I like to emphasize networking and writing things down and, and listening to your elders. For example, I love listening to the Jane Goodall podcast, the Hopecast. Anyways, those are sort of what I've learned along my journey. And now a year later, after working for the zoo, I've sort of transitioned out of doing coastal ecology into doing desert ecology. I think most important thing I've learned is an assistant or a technician, whatever you want to call these entry-level positions, you are still a biologist on the ground observing these changes happening to wildlife. Maybe it's as a result of climate change, which I've seen across the board with the different threatened species I've worked with. You know, the California least turn is critically endangered. The Western snowy plover is threatened, the threatened desert tortoise. And so this entire year, I've seen so much. And I like to call this next phase from sea to shining desert. And that's kind of where I'm at now. I know that was jam-packed, but I've been reflecting a lot. And it's crazy that I've been in this space for almost five years now, trying to figure out this very vague path of environmental sciences. What an incredible story. And it's a story that's still very much evolving, I think. It's evolving. It's crazy. Did you want to talk about your desert experience, your shining desert, as you call it? Yes. So I like to kind of think of it as migration inland, a migration of the seasons. And that's how I like to explain being a field worker is we're really migrating with these animals and we're on their time. That's the best part because it's not about us, right? Yeah. So that's the start of the desert journey, working with raptors. Like I said, I had done that earlier in my career as a volunteer. Once I had gotten that experience, I started doing early owl surveys in Palm Springs in California. And then I was going up towards, you know, the northernmost range of the Mojave on the outskirts 
parts of the Eastern Sierras. And I had done my first desert tortoise survey there. I fell in love with Lone Pine. It's my favorite place in California. And it's just a unique habitat with Mount Whitney right there. And desert tortoises at the base, it's just wild. But anyways, I digress. I started doing more tortoise surveys. I had gotten a certification actually with the Desert Tortoise Council. They have symposiums every year and I've learned a lot and networked a lot through them. And like I said, this kind of falls into that pattern of listening to your elders and these people that have these incredible experiences working with these animals for 20 plus years. So they are really the experts in this space. I was inspired by Christine Berry, who's been studying them her entire life. I like to acknowledge these people that have really influenced me. So I got that certification and then working for a consulting firm for a little bit as an on-call biologist. And I was traveling everywhere. And it was like I was watching my dream come true. That was the fall time of 2021 was really that exposure. I'm getting a taste of the desert. It has this addicting factor about it where you're under the Mojave moonlight in the morning, the crisp air, and then warms up throughout the day. And the Joshua trees look so beautiful during the sunrise. And I can tell you that any desert ecologist would say the best part about working in the desert is the sunrise. Absolutely. And so what is it about the desert that has taken your heart in a sense? Oh, that's a great question. I think the surprising element is how biodiverse it is. A lot of people think of it as a barren landscape. And I think the Oxford Dictionary even describes it as a wasteland. And it's not that at all. Like I said, there's the endangered Mojave desert tortoise, burrowing owl, the most venomous rattlesnake in the world, the Mojave green rattlesnake. There's the Mojave shovelnose snake, gopher snakes, desert kit fox. Gosh, the list goes on. Absolutely. And it sounds as if you're doing an awful lot of work with your herps at the moment, mm -hmm. your lizards, your snakes, your tortoises. Mm -hmm. But by the sounds of things, what really captured your heart was the birds. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit more about them being your gateway to the world of wildlife? Yes, sure. Like I said, when I first started doing wildlife work, I had worked at that raptor hospital and I was working with little screech owls, great horned owls, red tailed hawks, barred owls, bald eagles. And then doing that desert work with burrowing owls, I was like, okay, we're kind of connecting back here to that critical part of the beginning of my career, really. And then I had traveled to Zion on National Park and I saw my first California condor and that was it for me I was blown away absolutely that wonderful natural experience of wildlife mm -hmm. also that let's call it an undertone mm -hmm. the impacts of humans and all of these threatening processes mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about how you balance those two perspectives when you're out in the field? Absolutely. This is a great question. And I think one that weighs heavy on a lot of biologists who are seeing firsthand the changes on the ground with wildlife. So to start with an example of the California least turn and the impacts of climate change on their population, because they are critically endangered. Adults are now spending more time off the nest, foraging for longer periods as anchovies are retreating to colder waters further away from the shoreline. They are are spending more time off the nest, which allows their chicks to be vulnerable to predations. And the list of threats to least turns goes on and on. So that's sort of one impact I've seen with climate change is that prey availability. I mean, it was not easy seeing that and walking through the desert landscape can feel very barren, but walking through empty chick pens, it's tragic. Tragic. And experiencing those impacts firsthand in our generation I personally feel a huge amount of guilt. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that in your everyday life? And 
overcome it or use our powers for good in a sense. Absolutely. I like that you frame it that way. Use our powers for good. I feel like we all feel that sense of eco-anxiety, I like to call it. It's kind of a, a new term. What a great term. Right. So to kind of combat that, I like to seek out positive news because once you continue to seek it out, that sort of is what manifests itself in a way. Then you will start to see the possibilities of your own positive outcomes. And that sort of comes with listening to stories. There needs to be more story sharing that inspires the people around you with a message of hope. It's really the small moments that make up for those heavy feelings of eco-anxiety. For example, blooming flowers, baby tortoises, things that survive. <laughs> those are messages of hope. Yes. And while we're on the topic of hope, let's talk about your online space. Would you be able to tell us about your experience in the power of blogging and the importance of science communication? Yeah, that's a great question. I really like that you're bringing up the topic of science communication because I find that there isn't enough of it online or even in our place of work, just how important it is as biologists to be able to communicate what we're doing on the ground with the public. In my circle of friends and in my network of people, I don't know a ton of, of biologists and ones that share their stories. I think it's hard to market yourself. So that's something that is a part of my online presence that I've worked hard to kind of overcome because it's sort of uncomfortable at first. Absolutely. It is, right? Am I the only one who thinks that? I think that it's challenging in a space where you're used to being the only person around. You know, most ecologists are in the field. And so to be coming into a space that is so public is quite startling. It's discomforting, especially because I feel like there's this standard that, you know, biologists were in the field, we're in nature, we're supposed to just soak that in, be present. But what helps me be present is knowing that what I'm doing here is making an impact beyond just being in the field. And I think as an extroverted wildlife biologist, I meet a lot of people that are in the space to work with wildlife because they don't want to work with people. But there is such an important human element in all of wildlife. So I think that lends itself to promoting science communications because we have a, sh a story to share. And that's what I'm trying to do is share my story. I have my blog there and kind of going back to your question about that, it really started with writing things down, right? Like I had written that journal for the San Diego Zoo, that journal entry. And now I'm, I'm on the road traveling so much and I'm alone all the time. I have all these thoughts and these human experiences, right? That we're having as biologists that are so important to talk about. So I think the power of writing is what empowered my voice to want to continue to share. Absolutely. It's a vulnerable space to be in. But I think that the good that you are doing by trying, by starting that process, in a sense, conservation is a human construction because it's our solution to a problem that we're creating. And so communication to the broader public is just such an important part of that. That's a good way of putting it. You know, I'm mostly in the field, but it's writing about those experiences that help me ingrain them and realize how important they are to see these changes happen on the ground. Yes, absolutely. We will, of course, link all of Natalie's social media and her wonderful blog down in the show notes so that you'll be able to check that out. You've got this storytelling capacity on your blog where you're sharing your experience so people can visualize a day in the life of a wildlife biologist. But you've also got this advocacy component. Right now, like I said, I've really evolved in this desert conservation space and the desert really needs our help. 
we are facing two listings, um, the Joshua Tree listing and the Desert Tortoise listing. Right now, the Joshua Tree is under threat of extinction. So there are public comments for the Joshua Tree listing. I have a letter posted in my link tree that you can email yourself to California Game Commission. And I might add that the commission is, has only five people in it. Five people get to decide the fate of the Joshua Tree. And that cannot happen without the influence of public comment. That's unbelievable, isn't it? All this stuff going on. And it's all so relevant to your journey, which I'd really like to come back to. You've been talking about your journey through the ecology space because it's a career with no pathway. Absolutely. Like I was kind of saying about my journey in the beginning, I think what really, if I could, you know, succinctly say it and give a few points here, write down your experiences. First, inspiration. How can you be inspired? It's listening to other people that have been in this space and their stories. That's really important. And, you know, I listened to my professors, to Jane Goodall, and that just opened my mind to the possibilities of what this career pathway could look like, because it is unclear. And I think seeing other people in the space and what they've done helped me create my own path. So that was sort of the first step. And the second was really networking. I had spent a lot of time in my first year after undergrad on LinkedIn, targeting different organizations that I was interested in working for. From there, I started writing down the qualifications that I needed, sort of what was next, right? And that helped me sort of create a pathway. So I've really acquired all of my jobs through networking and following up with employers, building a relationship with them. Amazing. I'm really grateful that you've been very honest about the process, how intentional you've been. You're talking about writing down your thought, not just about the present moment, but about where you want your present to be in the future. Can you talk a little bit about your intentions and how they've guided you through the ecological space. Absolutely. I think what comes with intention is first fueled by that inspiration from your elders, and then that passion sort of starts to build, and you write about it. And the concept, you know, of working with endangered species, I was like, oh my God, like, I want to do that. That sounds like my calling, like knowing that we can make a difference in that space and being intentional about how kind of comes with seeking out those qualifications that you need to be a biologist. And owning that title too has been kind of a part of that intention. Completely. And that intention can carry you through a lot of those tougher times as well. I know periods of unemployment, periods of uncertainty, those periods are really challenging, not just when you're drowning in the moment, but also as a barrier to people who can't have those periods of unemployment. How have you found coping strategies, shall we say, for navigating those times of turmoil? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I find that, you know, when I lost my job with the San Diego Zoo during the pandemic, I had to pivot to avoid unemployment. And that was a tumultuous time. I find that, you know, like I said, I'm very extroverted. So outsourcing that energy into networking. And whenever I have a lull in unemployment, I'm on LinkedIn. I am talking to people. I'm expanding my network and using my, my social skills that at the end of the day, all we really have is our ability to communicate and use our voice, especially right now with 
desert conservation really being at the forefront. We have a couple of weeks to make a difference here. And that feels tumultuous in the time crunch, right? And to combat that, I'm constantly using my voice and writing all the time, always have my journal with me. I find that, you know, reflecting on little moments that you've kind of had along the positive parts of your journey. And I've really recognized the power of my past as a recognition for what I can do during those tumultuous times. Like, okay, I've done this before. I've been in a lull of unemployment. What did I do before? Really own your past and your own experiences. I'm only five, six years into the space and just looking back on everything, understanding and believing in your capability comes with the power of writing because your voice becomes stronger. You take anything that's in your brain outside of your brain and you put it on paper, it immediately becomes real. And if you want those words to become a reality, it's up to you to make that happen. It just comes with communication, I think, during those tumultuous times. Yes. And I think what you're speaking about just resonates so strongly with so taking the time to really do that groundwork, get your thoughts straight. It's not easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. I mean, people always talk about making your own luck. It's true. Intention is like the magic sauce for making your own luck. I like that. I guess I'm not realizing how intentional it was until it kind of developed into the story that it is now. So, <laughs> and it's those, as you called it, pinch yourself moments when you're like, this is my life. Like, this is real. And it's just such a powerful feeling to know that that can manifest for you, for everyone. Absolutely. It can manifest for everyone. And I think that's kind of the message that I try to share being a conservationist and recognizing that it doesn't matter if you're an assistant, a technician, a business person, anybody can be a conservationist. And even as a scientist, it doesn't have to be all that complicated. I think what it comes down to is if you love the environment and you want to help, it doesn't matter what you do, where you are, start with bird watching and the rest will follow, right? That's kind of how I look at it. And the biodiversity crisis is the biggest problem our generation is facing right now. And people need to see that. It's crazy how many people are on the planet that want to do something, but don't know how, you know, it's like so easy to get bogged down by what you do and not having enough time, but time is in your hands and the environment needs you to pay attention to it. <laughs> That's it. We need to find the time. We need to find the time. Exactly. For people listening, like what would be some of your advice for people looking to pursue the world of wildlife and then for ways they could help? It's a great question. I think this comes back to the topic of stewardship and the idea that I've kind of developed of backyard conservation. I talk a little bit about that on my website, how it's as simple as looking in your backyard and creating the habitat, or if you don't have a backyard and recognizing urban ecology. For example, my dad lives in Washington, D.C. and has a flying squirrel visit his bird feeder. And he lives in an apartment on the top floor step one, right, is looking outside your window and thinking, okay, can I can I add some plants here? Or maybe a bird feeder. That's sort of the key, I think, at least from what I was shown as a child and observed growing up and then sort of targeting volunteer organizations that you want to look for. And just using that intention to find kind of a conservation problem that you can create a solution for, right? There's that human element. Yeah, I guess volunteering and stuff, but that's easier said than done. Sometimes I feel like a broken record saying that. What do you think? <laughs> I think it's interesting that people are talking a lot about volunteering at the moment, because for me, there are two really different types of volunteering. 
Absolutely. There's some local volunteering where the cause that you're helping are never going to get paid to be helped. Like you're not taking a job from anyone. You're putting your passion and your heart to really good use. And of course, you build skills and experience as you do in every aspect of your life. Mm -hmm. And then there's that other kind of more elitist volunteering, which is more full-time and exploitative. Exploitive. You took the words out of my mouth. Yes. But I think if you can help, you shouldn't feel bad about being able to help, if that makes sense, because you want to help. I love that. And there's so many ways that you can do that in a really positive way. And actually, I think obviously a lot of people are stressed for time and financial resources, but at the same time, probably a lot of people could find some time, as you said, to put out a bird feeder or put some plants outside their garden. Take little steps, like take a shorter shower, use less plastic, things like that. Like we can all live with intention. We can all make a difference and it doesn't have to be elitist. Oh my gosh. I love that you said that. (laughs) Yeah. And you're even taking that one step further by actually promoting what you're doing and leading by example so that your one person impact can have a much broader magnification. Right. That's a stewardship practice. Absolutely. At the end of the day, as a passionate human looking to help wildlife and work and support themselves whilst supporting the natural world, seeking out experiences where you can do that can be a positive thing. Absolutely. I think you're right. It it really does not have to be for elitists and environmentalism needs to shift out of that culture. It's important if we are going to solve the biodiversity crisis that we include people from those lands that understand the environment and really have that indigenous voice. And I really seek that out in my line of work. Environmentalism is shifting and recognizing the need for diversity in our field. That's a huge topic of conversation in environmentalism that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's a really important conversation to be having. Just to finish off today, would you mind talking briefly about where in the online space people could find you if they were more interested in connecting and in reading some of your work? Sure. So I do a lot of my activism, explaining my my field work on the ground as a desert ecologist. I share a lot of good news and um, necessary, maybe not great news about what we need to protect the desert. And so in my Instagram bio, I have a link tree with a letter for the um, Joshua Tree public comment. And I also have a listing in my link tree for the desert tortoise listing as well. And I have a, a link to my blog. This is all in my link tree on my Instagram. And through that, you can also find my wildlife website. I have a little introduction there and a connection page for my LinkedIn if you want to connect with me on a more professional platform, I'm very active on LinkedIn and would love to chat online. If anyone listening is interested in reaching out, happy to provide advice. And, you know, hopefully one day I can be my own mentor to other people. That'll be valuable and kind of precious in a way, you know, turn everything that I've learned. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing such valuable insight into your experience in the conservation space. Thank you, Susie. Yes. Just remember to seek hope. Thank you for joining us for another episode of It's a Wildlife. If you've been inspired by our discussion or have something to share, please get in touch, leave us a review or share the love with your network. We'll chat soon.